Welcome to Uncommons. I'm Nathaniel Erskine-Smith, and on this episode, I'm joined by expert Pat Armstrong to discuss potential solutions to the terrible state of some of our long-term care facilities. A military report recently found in relation to five private long-term care homes in Ontario, a general culture of fear to use supplies, severe understaffing, abusive behavior, insect infestations, delayed changing of soiled residents leading to skin breakdown, forceful feeding causing audible choking, pressure ulcers due to prolonged bed rest, crying for help for 30 minutes to two hours with no one there to respond, and on and on and on. We obviously need to fix this. It's hard to understand and it is impossible to accept. I'm joined by Pat Armstrong, sociologist and research professor at York University, fellow of the Royal Society of Canada, with decades of research and publications on the issues of seniors care and how we can improve it. Professor Armstrong, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. The news out of the military report with respect to five long-term care homes in Ontario was nothing short of horrific. I suspect, though, that you weren't surprised based on your work and, and your previous writing. No, I wasn't surprised, although I should say that we have been in some very good nursing homes, if I can use that short form, more common term that is used in many countries. There are some good ones out there, but I'm not surprised that we see what we see in these five homes. We have been getting good care often in spite of the conditions rather than because of the conditions. And there has been just enough everything, just enough resources, just enough staff, just enough to barely make it through. And all it takes is something like this crisis to send us over the top or, or perhaps into the bottom. I was reading the report and then I read your work from 2009 and in 2009 you wrote as part of a, a larger report about they deserve better. They sit, they being senior residents, sit in soil diapers for hours because there are no workers available to answer their call. They are rushed through dinner because there are too many who need to be fed or they miss their bath because there are not enough staff to get everyone adequately bathed and they sit in their rooms without exercise or conversation. And I feel like that was news in many respects to Canadians because of the military report, but this is from 2009. And have we seen conditions improve? And if not, what, what are the lessons that we ought to be learning out of this? I don't think we've seen conditions improve all that much. Those places that were pretty good before are still, I think, pretty good, although struggling. The other thing you didn't mention was putting people in wheelchairs that is in the military report. And we've seen that a lot. We have lots of families tell us, my mother walked in here and they put her into a wheelchair. And then she can't walk because she spends so much time in the wheelchair. And why do they put her in the wheelchair? One of the reasons is that they don't have enough staff to help them walk to make sure they don't fall. And one of the really problematic things for them in terms of reporting is falls. We count the falls. We count what can be counted, and one of those things can be falls. And you can get in trouble in the nursing home if you have too many falls. So the solution is to put people in wheelchairs rather than to provide more care that allows those people to walk. And we see that in, the, in this report as well. We also see in the report... A, a discussion of the kind of documentation that goes on. We wrote a report a number of years ago that we called uh, it's, it's a Scandal. 
And we were looking at some of the scandals that have been discussed to a large extent in the media and looked at what was the response, what happened as a result. Well, what happened as a result often was more regulations, more regulations of the people who provide care, rather than taking on the big questions like more staff, better conditions of work. One of the things we also talked about in that report was the problem with resources, and we're hearing about that too in the military report, the, the lack of adult briefs or diapers or whatever they're called in the local place. Uh, we, were, we heard lots of stories from nursing staff that they simply couldn't get enough. They were rationed. They couldn't be, change people when they thought they should be changed because they were told that there weren't enough diapers. So in, in one part of the report from 2009 that I read, you reference, and this is testimony from staff, that diapers are under lock and key and a written reason has to be provided for accessing outside of their normal supply. Exactly. It seems, it seems wild. Yeah, yeah. Well, and the other, we wrote a paper called The Thin Blue Line because there's a blue line on these uh, products that the manufacturer said uh, that the line has to change color, which is, I, I, as I understand it, uh, also the case with baby diapers, that, uh, and that, that indicates the saturation point, and that's when you really need to change it. Well, these staff would say, look, we know when people need to change. We know when they're feeling uncomfortable. This line to change color is way beyond what makes people comfortable, what protects them from uh, infection, and yet we're being told we can't change them until the line turned blue, or as you said, they're locked up and we've used up our supplies. They told us stories about hiding them around the long-term care facility so that they could get uh, them when they needed them. Andre Picard, writing for The Globe, said, we don't need more inquiries and investigations. We know what we need to do. And he referenced a lot of the recommendations that I saw in your work, which calls for increased staffing levels, better training for those staff, and better supports for those staff. Is this, is this an issue? It's horribly tragic and completely unacceptable. Is it an issue that demands a public inquiry, or is it an issue that demands resources for known solutions? I think we know a lot about the solutions, and we could move on those quite quickly. They require resources. And I think that it also requires some federal intervention in terms of those resources, but also intervention that's based on establishing some conditions for getting those resources. So I'm going to make you the Minister of Health at the federal level for a moment. And what would be your focus to resolving this crisis? Well, I think that there's room for legislation parallel to the Canada Health Act. I wouldn't open the Canada Health Act but I think it's a very good model in terms of a piece of legislation that says, these are minimum standards you have to meet. And if you meet them, we will give you the money. If you don't meet them, then we, you won't get the money. And that's another way of getting around the argument, this is provincial jurisdiction, I think. Uh, and then we can get some kind of national consistency while still taking into account the local conditions, the jurisdictional issues, plus even within jurisdictions, different conditions, say, you know, 
in Northern Ontario, the issues are different than they are in downtown Toronto. Do you have a sense of what those standards ought to be? Well, certainly I think we have lots of evidence to start requiring minimum staffing levels. And a while ago in Ontario, there was an independent motion, private members bill in the legislature to make 4.0 hours of nursing, direct nursing care, uh, an absolute minimum. But that four hours was established at least more, a decade ago before the complications of the current care situation. I don't just mean COVID, I mean that because there are so few spaces, it's harder and harder to get into long-term care. And by the time you get there, you not only have dementia, which is the case for the majority, but you have some other kinds of conditions that require extensive care. So I was recently talking to one of our team members in the United States, who's a world-renowned expert on staffing issues. And she says that the current criterion should be 4.9 hours of direct nursing care. And that means counting people who are actually in the place providing care, not people who are on your books. And it means counting the people who are providing nursing care. Doesn't include all of the other services that are required. Doesn't include managers. It doesn't include um, the people who do uh, housekeeping, for example. And how short are we falling against that credible standard today? Well, it's hard to tell, in part because we, we're not providing the data very consistently. Uh, it's hard to tell because we rely on the home to tell us about their staffing. We don't have any other way of verifying it at the moment, but we are undoubtedly falling short. Some estimates are that the average is closer to 2.7 hours that in the city of Toronto, they say that it's uh, closer to 3.5 for their homes. So there's a, it, it depends on what kind of home you're talking about, but it also, it raises questions about our data and how reliable that, those data are. We recently committed $200 to every senior receiving the guaranteed income supplement as a special top up. I'm not going to argue against providing low-income seniors with necessary funds, but we also promised $300 tax-free through old age security for seniors more broadly. My dad and other constituents reached out to say, why am I receiving this money? I haven't seen any lost income. I am not facing increased costs. I don't need this money. And it did occur to me, and this was before the military report came out and just drew such sharp focus to the issue and just the horrible design of our of our current framework for, for treating people in nursing homes. But federal dollars would have been, seems to me, better delivered to, as you say, increase staffing levels and to provide necessary supports for workers in these homes to improve care overall than a benefit increased for some seniors who, who don't need it. If you had a dollar to spend at the federal level to address seniors' issues, it would be staffing that you'd be focusing those dollars towards? Certainly within long-term care, I would do that. I think in terms of costs, what we aren't talking about very often is what it costs to not do better care, not pay, put in more money for staffing, for example, and not pay those people who do provide the care more than we do now, as we've also seen during this crisis. 
that we, we've incurred a whole lot of costs because we didn't invest in this area. And it, I'm sure you know this given your position, but I, it always bothers me the notion that we will spend this money and it's as if when government spends on public services, we dig, dig a big hole and put the money in and cover it up. The money, <laughs> you know, the money goes to people who spend the money. It goes to those people who provide care and, and that's where it should go, I think, rather than to profit. It goes to those people who make the food and change the, the linens and take people for walks and provide them with their medication. And they in turn spend that money. So we're, we're investing that money in another way. We're investing it, of course, in, in providing decent care for seniors, but we're also investing in another way. So I, I think that the cost issue has to be thought in those terms. I, I'm not sure what the trade-offs are. I don't want to get into planning the federal budget, but uh, I certainly think it's well past time that we put the money there and calculate it in terms of the costs of not putting it there. Well, and the cost, not only as a matter of dollars and cents, but also as a matter of dignity and basic respect for our seniors here in Canada. I mean, the idea that we wouldn't fund sufficient staffing levels between provincial and federal shared responsibility as far as dollars go seems unacceptable. And the fact that you were writing about what seemed to be current conditions back in 2009 and, and maybe even before that makes it all the more unacceptable. You mentioned dollars going to staffing and not for profit. There is a clear distinction in the news when we see COVID cases and deaths as between not for profit and for profit. Uh, nursing homes and you in your research i take it see a, a long-term trend where there is better care and not-for-profit versus for-profit homes yes i think that there is a significant body of research that says the pattern is that the highest staffing levels the lowest levels of ulcers uh, 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 hospital transfers for example are in uh, the government home, homes and the highest, uh, the lowest staffing levels, the highest rates of hospital transfers, the highest rates of ulcers, et cetera, are in uh, not-for-profit, are in for-profit homes, sorry. So we have those trends. I, it's interesting to me, you often hear, well, I know a good private for-profit home, but that the question is with all of research, including all medical research, it's, it's what, what are the patterns? And the patterns, I think, are pretty clear in terms of for-profit care. And what is the argument for profit? Should we really be putting public dollars into profit in, the, in terms of providing care, or should it be going directly into care? I mean, everyone will have a story along these lines, I'm sure. My mother-in-law passed away from cancer about a decade ago, and she had the good fortune to have incredible personal support workers. She was able to stay at home for the vast majority of her time. And one of those personal support workers became very much like family, Connie, and she was just an incredible source of support and massively underpaid for the very difficult job she was doing, not only physically bathing my mother-in-law and looking after my mother-in-law in, in really moments of despair, also emotionally draining, of course. I don't know how Connie does what she does for so many different 
patients and, and, and I don't know how she cares for so many different families and, and, and people's loved ones because there's such a connection that she establishes. And then I, I think, do I want Connie to make more money and provide even better care? Or do I want money to flow to Mike Harris and company at Chartwell retirement residences? I, I mean, the answer seems obvious to me. Well, yes. And in addition to all of those things you described that Connie's doing, it's also the case that she's very likely to get injured or become ill. The, the highest absences due to illness and injury are in uh, long-term care and in long-term care, it's amongst the PSWs. They do an enormous amount of heavy labor. They often face violence. Uh, it's really difficult work. And I, I interviewed a human resource manager in Norway, in a big Norwegian nursing home. And she had come from their major media organization. I asked her if there were any surprises. And she said, I was so surprised at how hard these women work. And I asked her if, what would she do if she was in charge? And she said, if I was in charge of Norway, I would pay these women what we pay the men who work on the oil rigs because these women work harder. <laughs> and well, it seems it seems right based on everything I've seen. Well, and I'm really afraid that this is going to end up uh, like Mother's Day. You know, the heroes, heroes, thank you, essential workers, and that we'll take the money back and we'll take any of the uh, even small changes we've made in their favor now uh, when this is over back and say, oh, well, we can't afford it. You were talking about dignity and respect for residents. I think that the the people that provide the care find it very hard to treat them with dignity and respect when they themselves aren't treated with dignity and respect. You mentioned Norway. You've done a great deal of work, comparative work, on long-term care and, uh, and seniors care more broadly as between Canada and Scandinavia. What are the lessons that we ought to learn from countries that presumably do it better than, than we're currently doing it? Well, Norway has uh, done better in terms of outcomes related to the coronavirus. And I have been uh, talking to our colleague in Norway about this and what are the factors there. And he says that one factor is that they have a higher proportion of registered nurses on their staff than elsewhere. And those registered nurses do a lot of the direct care. They're not primarily managers, as is much more likely in our homes, although they certainly uh, do a lot of, of other kind of care in those homes. Uh, they also have higher staffing levels. They have a different physical designs in their place. They, they spend a lot more money on long-term care. That's, that's one of the things they do. And they also have more autonomy for the staff. They do virtually no contracting out. While there has been a, some, in the past at least, some growth in for-profit ownership there, it's a very small proportion of ownership. And he was telling me that in municipalities have started to take back the homes from the for-profit uh, companies uh, because they weren't very happy with the care that was provided. So, and, and at the same time, they give more autonomy to the staff that in our experience tended to work much more in teams than we see here. And it's very hard to have a team if your food is contracted out, if your cleaning's contracted out, if your laundry is contracted out. 
uh, if, and then even in some for-profits, the management is contracted out. Some not-for-profits, I mean the management is contracted out. Or if you have a lot of agency nurses, which is something else mentioned in the military reports, or you have a lot of part-time people, that it's really hard to work as a team. And all of those other people with other employers who come into a home increase the workload of the people who are the permanent employees. And of course, leaving aside the issue that continuity of care is really important, especially for people with dementia. My grandmom just moved out of Grimsby, her home for the vast majority of her life. And my mom was able to renovate the basement and my grandma's now, thankfully, and just happened and finally moved in in the fall, just in advance of the pandemic. And my mom and everyone feels very fortunate on the timing of it. Home care has been a priority in bilateral health accords with the provinces in the last five years. We haven't seen long-term care receive the same attention. Do you see home care being an important focus as well, or are, are these completely separate issues and we should focus on them each in a substantive way? Well, I certainly think that they're related. I, I think one of the things that's been happening in Canada is the notion that we can fix long-term care by providing more home care. I don't think we can. The, the people who are in long-term care require 24-hour care, and they require extensive skilled care. And we have to keep that in mind in terms of looking at home care as an alternative. I'm all supportive of, of home care for sure. But, but we also have to remember these two aspects, the skill and the 24 hours. In our current project, which we call Changing Places, we're looking uh, at the move into long-term care and under, trying to understand the processes. And we hear that people don't get to move into long-term care until there's a real crisis, uh, that they just can't do it anymore. And that's not simply because there's no home care, but because you can't have 24-hour home care. And right. so we can't say, certainly we need home care, certainly we need to support home care, and certainly we need to pay those workers, as you were saying earlier, for the kind of work they do, which is very important work and risky, not only in the ways it's risky in a long-term care home, but risky because you go into the place alone, and that's a riskier form of labor for sure. But we can't see home care as a way of solving our long-term care problem. You've also written about the gender impacts of the challenges we see in our nursing homes, and I, that plays out not only because women live longer, but also plays out because predominantly the workforce of personal support workers and nurses is also a female workforce. Yes, and that's the case throughout the world, although the, uh, there's some variation, but we still see at least 80% of the staff female, and especially in Toronto, for example, a significant proportion of those are racialized and are immigrants, which also adds to their precarity uh, in many ways. And what's really important, I think, is that we see these places, and especially because we call them homes, as providing care for people that is the same kind of care that women provide in home just because they're women, that it comes naturally to women, instead of understanding the skilled nature of the work 
and and it's interesting that it took the male military mainly male military to to point out these problems in care that you that you've been pointing out for years you you and you and others as well but i i i i honestly i was shocked when i was reading your work that the military report is merely echoing what you've already known and have been writing about in a public facing way for so very long well and part of that's really depressing and part of it is a kind of energizing. It's interesting, the emails that we're going back and forth amongst the people I know in a group I'm working with uh, right now to write something else on, on long-term care, that, that the comments were all about, we told you so. <laughs> <laughs> and we've known that for so, so long. I mean, it's more exaggerated now, for sure, because there are additional pressures. And as... Uh, Isabel McKenzie, the, the seniors advocate in BC, has said that there is also the freak factor, factor that, you know, we're frightened, and reasonably so, and so are the people who are providing care, frightened for themselves and frightened for their families, and that's an additional factor, but that can't explain away the kinds of things that were reported, precisely because, as you said, we've been seeing them for decades. Without question, there would have been some knock-on challenges to staffing levels. We received some correspondence in our office here about concerns that PSWs had and, and other nursing home workers had with going into work for their own safety and the safety of their families, but it doesn't explain entirely the circumstances in which we find ourselves and the unacceptable circumstances in which we find ourselves. You mentioned an advocate out in BC. Some provinces have better outcomes for their nursing homes than Ontario does. Is there, you've looked to Scandinavia, have you also looked to within our own federation and which provinces are engaging in best practices? Well, first of all, we like to call them promising practices because we don't think that there's a single right way, uh, that it depends on the population, on the context, on the location, on a, on a lot of factors. There, there certainly are what we call good ideas worth sharing. And I think you can find those in all provinces. I think that one of the things that shows up in terms of Quebec and Ontario is the high proportion of for-profit delivery and for-profit homes, and also a kind of business model. Back, going back to what I said earlier, just enough everything being uh, the model. And I, I don't think you can do just enough care because it, it can too often become poor care. But uh, we've seen some very good examples in Manitoba, for, uh, for instance, where in individual homes that are not-for-profit that have, for example, said, our policy is everyone will be full-time who uh, wants a full-time job. You need some part-time, some casual people to cover for things like illness or leaves or vacations. Uh, but for those purposes, they keep a roster of their own. They don't hire agency nurses. They keep a roster of people who have worked part-time in their place and offer those jobs to those people so that they're not strangers. They're people who know the place or connected to the place who know the residents. And when new vacancies come up because someone retires or leaves for another reason, they go first to their part-time list because they've had experience with those people. They know that they have, have trained them. It, they provide their own training on a regular basis. And one of the kinds of trainings that really struck me in that place was uh, we were interviewing a, a man who was uh, one uh, on the nursing staff who said that 
they were required to bathe each other using a lift into uh, into the bath and he said i it was extraordinary i've never felt so vulnerable they even let me wear a bathing suit and i just felt so vulnerable and exposed and it was one of the most important pieces of training I had and they do regular trainings of that sort so we have some really good examples uh, like that that we can learn from in Canada and we can find them everywhere but I think we're least likely to find them in the provinces with the most for-profits. It's a good connection to draw because while I have no doubt there are some very good for-profit delivery uh, there are some very good for-profit long-term care homes I imagine that we will see the best outcomes in the for-profit system where there is a direct connection to the community, where the people who run the home are involved in the community in some way, where one's reputation is on the line and there's a a real connection to one's surroundings and to one's neighbors and and, a sense of community. Whereas the more faceless corporate version of other long-term care homes where it becomes, well, let's decrease staffing levels, let's decrease training because those pressure points mean greater profits for us. And there isn't that same sense of community. It it seems to me that's largely where the problems are are then going to be seen. Yeah, and and to pick up on that point, if you go to many of the homes that are embedded in the community, there is a whole lot of volunteer labor. And those uh, those community people tend to move in and out of the home in ways that really connect the residents to the community. Now, right now, you could say you shouldn't do that because of the coronavirus, but I I think that there are ways we could have continued to do that. Maybe in terms of strangers uh, coming into the home, we should have given special infection training to the the people who usually come into those not-for-profit homes and allow them to be the, the ones who provide additional labor rather than strangers who'd never been there. Um, but certainly there is a pattern of in the not-for-profits and in the, the government-owned homes of much more connection to the community and direct involvement. Do you have a sense of how much additional money will be required to bring staffing levels up and training levels up to a place where we can look to a future and say we are doing enough to look after our seniors in nursing homes and what took place over decades and what really came into focus in the course of the pandemic will never happen again? Uh, well, I'm not much of a, an economist in terms of being able to make that calculation, but I think we could figure it out by looking at staffing levels and an increase in uh, hiring. We could do learn something from COVID by raising the wages as we've done in Ontario rather late, but nevertheless followed BC's example and uh, made people offers for full-time rather than part-time jobs. So we have some economic indicators right now, I think, at least in terms of raising the wages. Maybe we should calculate in what the military were paid and figure out uh, on that basis. It does seem that there is a moment in time where the public's attention is rightly focused on this tragic issue and and wants to correct it, where there has been great federal-provincial collaboration in the course of this crisis, and so the jurisdictional boundaries maybe matter less than they did before the crisis, and where we have a government at the federal level, at least, that has really pushed 
towards gender equality. And for all of those reasons, I think there's reason to be optimistic, you know, with focus pressure from experts like yourself and, and from Canadians across the country. I think it is an opportunity. I sure hope it's not an opportunity we miss. I, I have to say, I have been getting so many emails from people who certainly don't know me, but you can find me because, you know, I'm a professor at a university and you can look me up. And I, I, get, I just got one today, for instance, of a man saying, the long-term care home that my wife is in smells. It smells all the time. And it's not just that it's offensive, but I'm really worried about this as a health hazard. And it's been going on for years and I've complained about it. Who do I talk to? I, I get those kinds of uh, emails all the time from people just looking for a way to make a difference, to be able to help make this place better. I think that if we draw on that public, that that would be really powerful. I've just finished reading uh, Monique Bégin's uh, autobiography and was reminded again, as she had said in her book on Medicare, that we got Medicare in part because of the incredibly broad public support, because mm -hmm. some public demand for it. And I think we're seeing that demand now. And I think that if people at the federal and provincial level are not prepared to move on this, they're going to suffer big time in popularity. Well, I hope in moving forward with this, that, that public demand continues and certainly People in my position, I think, need to continue to be vocal on the issue to encourage that demand and to mobilize that demand. And then I, I do hope that the province here in Ontario, but also our, our federal government, where we can lean into this, will also get in touch with you and, and experts in the field who have been obviously calling attention to this and calling attention to some pretty straightforward solutions on this for, for such a very long time. Well, I hope it can make a difference and I hope we can move on this difference now without saying it's like the precautionary principle you know you don't have to prove the whole thing before you can figure out some good ways forward exactly i have to say as frustrating and sad as it was to see the same issues arise from the military report that you were writing about for decades but what gave me some optimism at least is that the solutions don't seem complicated, that we are to double down on the resources that we already have in the system, which is the workers. And we need to increase staffing levels and increase supports for those workers. And that seems eminently doable. Yes. And training. And uh, training. I think it's important to remember that these people who provide the care also are calling for more training. It's not, it's not just people outside, that they want to have a regular hands-on instructions because their job keeps changing. And I really hope that we can get some of those resources and that we listen to the staff and the families and the residents. I should tell you, we produce four little books that are readily downloadable that are based on these good ideas worth sharing that provide some very specific examples uh, on the physical environment, on the organization of work, on, on the many areas that we can move forward on examples taken from the six countries that were in our study. Well, with solutions in hand and public rightly demanding action, I, I hope this is resolved. And, and as I say, it's a moment in time that I do hope we don't waste. So I, I appreciate all of your work. Well, and I appreciate you raising this topic in this way. Thank you. 
Thanks for joining us on another episode of Uncommons. Unquestionably, we have to follow Professor Armstrong's advice and seize this moment to improve seniors' care in Ontario, but across the country. As always, remember to subscribe for future episodes at uncommons.ca.